You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. I am back after a week off last week, which I wasn't really planning on taking the week off. But if you don't know, I'll catch you up real quick on I know I've said this a bunch of times and probably on the other podcast and from stage. But we were on Emory tour last week. We did a whole week across the Midwest of Seattle, which is horrible. The only reason that we... Okay, I'll back up. Those places aren't horrible and the people aren't horrible, but the daggum drives and the geography is very, very difficult. So when you leave, you know, we'll say you're in Missouri or some St. Louis, somewhere like that, and you try to get to Seattle, if you're touring, there's almost no choices. So you have to drive 500 miles a day and go, you know, go up mountains a lot of time and there's nothing in between. So your only choices are take a day off between every show, which normally if it drives 500 miles, you want to have a day off. So either you take the day off every other day and take two weeks to go across just to get to Seattle so you can do the West Coast, uh, or you just have miserable amount of drives and, and no sleep at all, especially uh, if you're in a van. Now, we had planned on doing this in our tour bus, but our tour bus broke down. Now, a tour bus is good because you can sleep anytime you want to unless you're driving. And that's part of the whole reason we booked these shows in the first place was to get to the West Coast and have our bus up here primed for our West Coast tour and then to go back across the Southwest and go back to Texas and all that. But our bus broke down. So now we have all these shows to play and no real transportation and it doesn't even accomplish the purpose of why we booked these hard shows in the first place, which was to get our bus across the country. So we took our old van, which was we were told would not work at all, and said, don't take it. We said, we don't have another choice. So we cut our crew, we cut our gear, and we just got the six of us and got in the van and drove. And we thought we had outsmarted the old mechanic because we made it all, almost all the way to Denver before the transmission fell out of the bottom of our van. So now we are stranded there. We rent a U-Haul truck and ride in the back of it like uh, John Candy and them in Home Alone on, and Kevin McAllister's mom. And we that's how we got out of the middle of nowhere to our Denver show, which we got to right at doors. And then uh, we rented a minivan and got even tighter and made it all the way to Seattle. So certainly I got a lot. To, oh, by the way, we bought another bus in Idaho a couple of days later. So now we have a bus in Nashville at the shop, a van at a transmission shop in the middle of Kansas, no, on the border of Kansas and, and Colorado, and a new bus in storage here in Seattle that, that we're going to convert and keep rolling. So I have more info about that. We'll figure some stuff out, and I'm not exactly sure how we'll travel. But I didn't have a minute to even listen to a podcast last week, much less make one. So I do apologize for that. I will try to do as many podcasts as I can when I can. And then you guys are just have to get used to the fact that I'll have some gaps here and there. Anyway, I want to tell you the show today, as always, is brought to you by Broadcast Supply Worldwide. Broadcast Supply Worldwide is where I get my microphones, where I get my gear, my cl clips, microphone stands, cables, anything that you need for broadcasting and a lot of what you need for any type of audio or recording stuff they have there. They've been around for a long time. They supply they supply the equipment to most of the major radio stations that just have these million-dollar setups. So they have amazing high-end stuff and very, very specific stuff there that they don't have everywhere at the other online retailers. Broadcast Supply Worldwide is perfect. They have great prices or better prices than the other online retailers. They have better customer support 
than the other ones. They have a warehouse in the Midwest so that your stuff gets there really quick. Uh, you get free shipping on any orders over $99. And like I said, the prices are already as good as anybody's anyway. And you get 10% off because you listen to my show. So all you got to do is enter the promo code down if you get any gear in the podcast category. And that will help me. It will help them and will help you. So it's quite simple why they're the sponsor of this show because you guys make podcasts and you do audio and you're into that kind of stuff. So they win, I win, and you win. So it's it's a it's a good deal for everybody. So make sure you support broadcast supply worldwide, bswusa.com, and in turn you'll be helping yourself and helping me. The guest on the show today is Matt McGinley. He is the drummer for Gym Class Heroes. I've known him a long time. Uh, we did a few tours. Emory did a few tours with Gym Class Heroes where we took them as an opener. Uh, I don't want to take too much credit for it, but we always thought they were a super good band. But before they, basically when they first had their first record come out, nobody knew who they were. We thought they were tremendous and doing something unique and different. And we'd, we'd done two or three whole U.S. tours with them before, way before they got big or blew up or Travis McCoy did his thing. And they those guys got famous and super successful, but they've always been super cool. We've always enjoyed hanging around with them a lot. So their drummer, Matt McGinley, who he does more than just drum, apparently. I found out recently that he is credited as one of the music contributors to the S-Town podcast. He's on their website. And if you guys know, I've been raving about the S-Town podcast. I love it. It's my favorite podcast I've ever heard. I think it's totally brilliant. And then I found out just because I was looking at the website that my friend, Matt, does music for that show. So I was super stoked on that. Hit him up immediately and said, you got to come on and tell me about it. I hadn't seen him or talked to him in, I don't know, five to seven probably years since I've seen him or talked to him. So I thought it'd be great to just catch up on air, see what he's going on and talk about the S-Town podcast, music licensing and creation and composing and all the stuff that he does and is being very successful at. So I want to thank Matt McGinley for coming on today. It was good to talk to him and I think you'll enjoy our conversation. And also, if you need any music or anything, you might want to check him out. His uh, website is smalltalkmusica.com. His name is Matt McGinley from Gym Class, but check out the music and stuff he does. Maybe you need something. So what I'm going to do is play some of his music under this interview. So any music you hear will be his in this one. And last thing is, don't forget, Emory still has shows coming up, and I want everybody to come out and see it, help us fund our new bus. Uh, the shows were great. But maybe I had to go back and say that. The shows were unbelievable. We had massive crowds. Our, I think we sounded great. Uh, it was just between shows that was difficult, but the shows were great. The markets are great. The people were good. Anyway, we have more shows coming on the West Coast and then in Texas soon, and we're playing at Audio Feed Festival in Urbana, Illinois. And no, I'm sorry, Emory's not playing. Matt and Toby's playing there, and the Bad Christian Podcast is going to be at Audio Feed Festival. You can get tickets for that at badchristianday.com. And on emorymusic.com, there are acoustic shows in Indianapolis, Detroit, and Chicago. So you can come out and see and hang out with Devin and Toby and Dave and I all night long in a, a really small crowd. It's a special, intimate thing we do where we come have a party and play Emory songs for about... 50 to 100 people a night. So see if you can make your way to one of those shows. That'll be really special. Those are at emorymusic.com, audio feed, and Emory shows on the West Coast. All right, now on to the conversation. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down.
love to do a ton of biography, and we can do some catching up because there's a bunch of catching up I'd like to do with you, but I don't want to waste a ton of time uh, either. So I'm going to try to do a quick amount of catch up live on the air here, and then we'll, okay. I'm sure we'll get sidetracked into the stuff you're doing, which I really want to talk about. So you still live in Rochester then? Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm living way out in the country of Rochester. I'm sure you've been through Rochester, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. We've been through together at least once or twice where y'all stopped off and what did we go to that? I don't know. Some, there was the cafe we went to there one time, like the King of Sport of Kings. That's up near you, right? Okay, yeah, I think so. I know for a fact we played with you guys in Syracuse for uh-huh. sure. It like Lost Horizon or somewhere like yeah. that. But uh, yeah, anyways, yeah, Rochester, New York. So y'all, but you still live out there, which is not near a whole lot of stuff. Right? <laughs> Not particularly. I mean, if where I live right now just feels like just way out there in the country, super remote. Um, but you can literally drive five minutes down the road and be at like a target. And you can see the yeah. the skyline downtown Rochester actually when it gets dark from up here. So it's it's deceptively close to things. That's good. Um it's maybe five hours from New York City, which is cool, like when I need to go down there for or yeah, down there for um work and stuff That's like pretty, that. And you got an airport in Rochester. That's pretty good. Exactly, yes. I just need to be by an airport and, um, you know, I can pretty much make music wherever. And so you have a studio there at your house? I do, yeah. When we we moved in here about maybe three or four years ago and it was like a um, carpet, like the the last owner was like a carpenter and he had this amazing carpentry shop out there. And so um, that was kind of like, I guess, fundamental in what we were looking for in a house. Like we wanted a house, but also like a separate unit that I could convert into a studio and, mm-hmm. and work from there. So, I mean, it's great. Like, I actually have to leave the house, which does something mentally to me. Like, mm-hmm. just to be able to physically leave my my home, yes. I think, is is important for the creative process to sort of, like, I don't know, separate myself from whatever is happening in my life. So, it's cool to have a separate space. At the same time, the commute is fantastic because yes. it takes all 10 seconds to walk out the back door. So Yeah, that, I think that is super key to get away from your house and especially if you have family. So th- let me talk about that. So did you, at, let, where is all of Gym Class he- Heroes as far as life, kids, marriage, family? I'm not caught <laughs> up on that. How about that? I think everybody's in a, a variety of, uh, I guess, transitional points right now. Um, <laughs> Travis, still a bachelor as ever. Mm-hmm. Um actually just got a house in upstate New York. So he's been living in uh, Battery Park in Manhattan for like, mm-hmm. I think, seven or eight years now. Um, so he'll be headed this way, I think, in a couple of weeks. I might go down and help him move, like, lug furniture and stuff. But, um, yeah, Dasashi is in Colorado, wife, kids. Uh, Eric was in Portland mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years, is just making his way back upstate. So... Yeah, everybody's kind of spread out, uh, different things happening in their in their lives. And, and what about you, at. though? You said we, so you're married? Yeah, I've, um, I've, I've lived with my wife like a married person for a lot longer than we've uh-huh. actually been married. We've, we actually got together when I was like 19, so um, been together for a long time. Uh, we got two kids, uh, both, both girls, three years old, six years old. That's cool. Uh, that's fantastic. I've got three, almost a four-year-old and an eight-month-old girls. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Cool. That, that is, is super exciting. cool. It is. 
It is. So, okay, so you and your family, you guys have settled down. One more thing I want to get to is... Uh... Oh, no, I don't want to get to anything else. I just got... I want to talk about S-Town Podcast. That's all I want to talk about. <laughs> That's the <laughs> It's... Uh... So it seems to me, I, I ran into it recently because I got, I listened to the S-Town podcast and just thought it was the awesome. best podcast I've ever heard. It re I really do think it is. And I thought the music is really cool. I thought the artwork is cool, the website, everything about it. I look to them, to that whole thing as a tastemaker thing. I'm super into podcasting, obviously, and all that stuff. And so I just was super into that show and to the point where, which I never do this with podcasts, I'm going to its website to find out what its credits are and what's going on, whatever. And I start doing uh -huh. it. And as soon as I click on the website and poke around a second, I see Matt McGinley is credited as doing music, which I maybe didn't catch if they said it in the credits. I wasn't paying attention, you know, in the episodes, uh, if they uh -huh. say your name in the credits. Do they? Yeah, they do. See, I didn't even like catch that. It didn't, I didn't even catch it. But when I saw your name on the website, I was like, I know that guy. He's doing music for this freaking show. I was like, this is oh, somebody right. I know pretty well. And I don't know if people know or not that we've toured together. I guess a bunch. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I haven't talked yeah. to you in, I don't know, it's probably been eight years or something since I've seen you or talked to you at all. So I said, let's just catch up on air. Anyway, That's awesome. tell me about this. How did you get um, into working with S-Town? Yeah, so, I mean, it... it it all sort of winds back to gym class heroes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we did that until 2012. I guess the only way to describe it, being in a band is complicated. Mm -hmm. You know that. Um, it it was just like our first period of inactivity. Um, but I still wanted to be doing music and pursuing music independent of my band. Um, I ended up touring with an Interscope Records artist named Rin Weaver playing drums. Um, did that, and through that, I was introduced to Damian Grafe, who's the music supervisor for This American Life. Uh -huh. um, basically, he's the guy that just goes out and finds all the music. So all the music that you hear in This American Life is all music that comes through Damian, and then he brings to the show. Okay, so let's let's go super slow on this, just because the interesting and <laughs> the people that listen to the show like to hear how stuff works, basically, sure, like absolutely. I do. So this guy, Damian, works for This American Life. I would like to get a grip on how big that staff is, and then I know that'll transition to S-Town, Serial, that stuff too. But This American Life is the property that has that spawned S-Town and Serial and some other stuff as the leader in this mm -hmm. kind of style of podcasting kind of thing. So it's probably the biggest one or the biggest one like this. They have a guy on staff whose full-time job is just for that one show, and it's music supervisor. That is that a full-time job for that one guy is music for this one show? Yeah, I'm not really sure of like the terms of how uh -huh. how that stuff is contracted, whether it's a freelance thing. But mm -hmm. Damien's been with the show for a really long time because um, I was a show I was a fan of the show before I started working on music. But even when I was working on music, I would go way back and listen and revisit episodes, kind of simultaneously to sort of have on in the background while I was writing music. Mm -hmm. um, and man, like years back, I would just be hearing Damien's credit after every show, but also just the character and the tone of the music. Mm -hmm. It all feels very related. Um, so I, I think Damien plays a heavy hand in sort of bringing that that sound that you associate with This American Life to the show. So he look, he goes out and finds different. It's not like they just have two or three people make them compose on the spot. They go out and license things and are ser searching for certain things that fit the episode of the story, but he's got a cohesive taste to it basically yeah definitely and i think yeah some stuff is licensed and then um he also has a library of his own um 
where he's you know works with composers or producers and mm-hmm. um, catalogs a, a curation of music. And so is he in charge of selecting the music then versus Ira Glass or the producer of that actual segment or the editor? How, how does that work in, in the workflow? Do you know? Yeah. So on This American Life, um, is, as far as I know, he's he's basically the guy that just brings the bulk of the music. Like, here's like 50 tunes, like check these out. And then uh, the show selects what they do and don't want. Um, and then it becomes part of their song library and individual producers that are producing their own segments mm-hmm. can sort of grab music as they see Got it. fit. So Got it. I'm, I'm not sure if that's a hundred percent. I mean, I'm not there in the office. It's a very removed kind of mm-hmm. situation, but um, uh, the most I can tell that seems to be like the average of how yeah. the process goes. Well, so I'm trying to just get a grip on the whole spectrum of it, you know, from a, a, just the size of it, because obviously a lot of it's independent contracted stuff. So it's not like the guy, if you're doing music for S-Town, that you're necessarily there in the office and studio. And, you know, it's nothing like that. It's, it's just, it's more remote and independent contracted kind of stuff for the most part. Correct. But there yeah, is, there's still nonetheless a really large staff at This American Life it, itself just to run that production, I imagine, of that are, that are in office and in studio. Yeah, it certainly appears so. I mean, that's like, it's such an institution there. That that was a large part of me wanting to be involved with that particular show. It was just mm-hmm. like um, the the fantastic journalism and stories that they've covered over the years have just been incredible. And so for me to be able to like contribute music that enables people's stories to be told is just like a fantastic thing. It's like it, it adds a whole new like meaningfulness to to producing music absolutely so you would you start you you met with him got got in you know association with damien and he started asking you to do small things here and there for this american life yeah um i guess i met him when kind of at the right time he was looking for more music uh for a round of writing Mm -hmm. for this american life uh it was just coming to the point where I was had just come off the road, had a lot more free time to produce music, even though it's something that I could totally do from the road. But um, yeah, so basically every day, I, I kind of treated it like a nine to five job. I, I went out every single morning at 8.30, had coffee and wrote a song. And at 4.30 or five o'clock, I was delivering that song, mixed, mastered. Um, Instrumental. Then, oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of basically it was just a challenge to sort of every day conceive, write, record, arrange, mix, master a song and deliver it by the end of the day uh, so that I could come in the next morning and do it all again. Mm-hmm. And so was he asking for certain things and giving you direction or he was just put like you would just send him all your library, didn't matter when you had composed it and he was picking through it? Yeah, I sent him some back catalog stuff of mine, but I... I've, I'm very familiar with the show, and I'm super familiar with like the voices, the producers, the pacing of mm-hmm. of the narrative on that show, and so I could pretty easily tell. Okay, these songs like got no business like being used within the show, and so stuff like that that I could easily dismiss, I wouldn't send to him. Um, I, I'm sure I sent him a few existing songs. I'm pretty sure only one of those got used. So that year, everything that got used on the show was stuff that I had specifically written for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But did you know what the show or the content of the episode was going to be about? Did that inform it, or is it just they were comp- compositions that were moods that were then selected for what where they would be used? Yeah, so so I don't know anything about the episodes. I mean, S Town was the first time that I really like got clued into like what the overall arc of the story mm-hmm. and, and certain points um, what was happening. But with this American Life, it's like very very vague. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I'm familiar enough with the show to sort of have an idea of what music is palatable, I guess, to that. But um, but yeah, just sort of like it's kind of a blank canvas and you're, you're sort of shooting in the dark, which is really, really like liberating. At the same time, it can be daunting to look at that blank canvas every day and think like I could do like literally anything. So where do I even begin? You know, it, it can be um, almost too open-ended sometimes. For sure. And so... <clears throat> You don't have any direction at all. Are they giving you, are they not even telling you moods they're looking for? Or it's just, you know the show, so compose some stuff and we'll figure it out. Yeah, it's it's basically like that. Um, <laughs> and and even with Damien, like really like, like I, I really, really respect him as, as a music, super, as a person, but also as, as a music supervisor. And like, it became my goal every single day to impress him in some way. I just wanted to make music That's cool. that he was vibing with. And, um, and it was really, really interesting because like he almost gives me no feedback. And it's like, at first it was a little concerning. And then every now and again, he'll sort of like be like, yeah, this one's really funky. And like, that's like, it, you know, if he tells you it's really funky, it's like, wow, that's like super meaningful to me. So, um, but that at the same time kind of gets in my head. Like, and so it's like, then I'll go in the next day and be like, well, gotta so do does something the funky. Gotta be super funky. Yeah, exactly. And this so, guy loves funk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found that like, I found that I almost like need just zero feedback. Uh-huh. Like either the feedback is like critical and I can, and, and that can be helpful. Like I can learn from that and take it, you know, in, in a better direction hmm. at least. But like, even if the feedback is good, it sort of gets in my head a little yeah. bit, I found. Let me so. think about this for a little bit out loud. So I think what's interesting, one of the hardest things about making music or anything creative is the the, the blank canvas thing is, uh, it's a really profound notion that you can do whatever you want to do, but you're supposed to do something and you can't really do whatever you want to do because you are you and you have your own preferences. So you're already limited in a way that you're ignorant to, which I think is super bizarre because... <laughs> like, uh, if I look back at the music we wrote for Emory, it, oh, we could have written whatever we wanted to, but that's not really true because we only were into certain stuff and had a certain set of skills or were trying to do a very certain thing, even though it didn't feel like it. It felt like total freedom, but the uh-huh. actual person that you are and your taste and influence that you've cultivated since you were a two-year-old and a five-year-old and what you're into lately, that already, like takes out there's so many things you would never attempt to do because it's not it wouldn't even occur to you to do so there's some limitations there but this still feels pretty wide open so then it seems like and a lot of people talk about this there's imposed constraints that you had to put on yourself or rules or something like that that also are going to color you know like putting limitations on yourself is a good way to move forward essentially so even in rock music most of the time we're talking about okay guitar bass and drums maybe some keyboards that's massive in the limitations but then i imagine when you go to instrumental music um and you're doing it by yourself and there's no there's no uh, audience that you're working out in front of which is another thing that causes limitations like oh fans want this or live shows it feels this way when you're an instrumentalist 
trying to make composed music, it, it, it feels pretty wide open, I imagine, uh, especially because you could use whatever instruments and there's no audience at all, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like now just with the given state of music production, like yeah. it's limitless options. And, yeah. and so, you know, you could look at like, like you don't just have a keyboard, you have like a tuba, uh, yes. you know, a, a whole horn section, a string section, you have organs, you have literally anything that can make a sound or can be sampled, you have access to. Mm -hmm. And so that coupled with like extensive plugins, you know, preamps, mm -hmm. uh, compressors, EQs, like all yeah. these effects, it's just like, there's almost just like, it just a daunting amount of options. And mm -hmm. so I, I, th I think what you're saying about like limiting it to like, cool, guitars, drums, bass, maybe keys. Like that's kind of the way I started to approach a lot of the This American Life music where I knew that there was this like palette of instruments that I really liked and I thought worked well in the show. And so I found that like, um, like Farfisa organ, like from the seventies, I came back to that all the time because it sounded really good. Mm -hmm. um, drum break stuff, like chopping drums on an MPC and having that go against the organ, like it just felt really good for the show. And so, you know, that being said, like there's tons of options, but I found that there was like kind of a sweet spot of, of instruments that I really liked to work with for the show. And so a lot of times I would sort of limit myself and I would even tell my wife all the time, be like tomorrow's song, I'm just using three instruments. There's no more than that because, yeah. um, you know, I mean, you, you can really get carried away with the amount of stuff. And then all of a sudden you're trying to mix like, you know, 48 channels in like an hour. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, the, and so what, what, what seems interesting to me is, so you got those things going on and then you've got, what struck me about it that I'm trying to get to in my head is you were, you just said a minute ago, I don't know if you realize it or not, that you were trying to impress uh, Damien. That was that was your goal. And so what I'm trying to suggest is that in itself became your limit, you know, like that was actually, he. it was an audience, but of one, uh, and but with very yeah. little feedback. And so even <laughs> not having feedback from him, you probably got into this, like uh, that in itself gave you a guiding principle, whether it was fictional or not, that led you sure. to a style. So that's, I think that's where you ultimately get, but is nothing is good musically, in my opinion, or artistically, unless it's unique or unless it's highly, you know, unique or another way to put it is highly stylized. So to have its own character that makes it super unique is really what makes something able to be listened to above the noise. So it's exclusive of everything else. So super quiet ambient music, that that's almost its identity or super heavy music. Okay, we're trying to be aggressive, that's clear, you know. Right. And so when you get super stylized, then you you've cut off almost all these other possibilities. But the hardest thing to do is develop your style. Like say you're great at guitar, but I don't know. What do you sound like? Would would be the question. That's going to make the difference in the end. Is what do you sound like as a guitar player? You know, in the end. Totally. And so what what you have there is some hard limits on, on what you were trying to do that was making you actually go super narrow. Use a few instruments. Try to impress one person. Like now you have almost a recipe of how Matt becomes very style and and what you think about the show, This American Life. You know that sure. that became how you maybe. Uh, I'm suggesting that became how you develop the style that does sound like you. So most people want to go, 
it'd be a mistake to go outside and say, I can use a whole orchestra and I can do all these different types of music. It's almost, uh, it seems like it's a good idea to go narrow. And like you said, people would have gotten insecure about using the same organ patch over and over again. But you're confident enough and stylized enough and therefore have your own sound, the fact that you use similar instruments very often and you're in a certain headspace trying to impress one guy. That becomes the narrow filter in which mm -hmm. you've developed your style, which is now a commercial thing, and then on to another podcast. And now now you are this guy that does this thing in this way, and, and it's clear to everybody who you are and what you do. Yeah, that that's super exciting to me, um, just to think about it that way. I think that, like, especially with This American Life, I felt like that was an opportunity to make music that you know, obviously pleases Damien, but also pleases myself and sort of like find a really unique space or lane for my music and just kind of stay in there. Because like for me, like the goal has always been like to to score films and stuff. And I really, really want to do that. But the almost the state of like of music and films is highly like synthesized. There's lots of ambient stuff, mm -hmm. minimal stuff. And that stuff's awesome. And it, and it really, really feels great. But there's like you know, a hundred thousand guys that and girls that do that, like incredible, you know, and do a really good job at that. So I'm, I'm not really going to like try and like reverse engineer that style. I think that like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's important to sort of find your lane and then just like keep yes. just hammering away at it. And I think like of course. over and over, you're just going to get better and better. And I see so many talented people and I, I feel like a huge mistake is that like, I'll see really, really talented producers that are so good but then like they'll switch it up to sort of like because this thing over here is working more. Yes. And so they'll go to this and then they'll do that like marginally and they'll almost get it. So it's really good. But then all of a sudden the state of music is way over here. And so they kind of right. shift in this direction. And I feel like with with gym classes, especially as like the um, the model for that, like we kind of always we have been a band for like eight years before we ever got signed and, and especially before we ever had success. And so like we were just kind of kept doing our thing and then all of a sudden like the world sort of like that's kind right. of connected with the that's music exactly at that, right at that right point yeah. yes that's exactly right and the reason is uh and you can see it with any genre or type it starts all right here's a way to look at it if you want to be on the radio one way to do that would be try to sound like the music on the radio and compete with the best of the best, already established people doing a certain thing and see if somehow, it, it sounds really daunting to me, you could sound good enough and then make the right connections, whatever. That just seems like a very, very silly goal. Uh, it, it's almost impossible. And even if you did do it, you would have done it by being derivative anyway. So what's totally. ideal is to have a, a sound that you're making that then becomes what is on the radio in the future. That's the actual really real goal. So you could use uh, a couple examples would be uh, Mumford and Sons. You, when they started probably making their first record, it didn't sound like what was on the radio, mm -hmm. you know, but it became what was on the radio and this stuff started sounding like it. So they were lucky about that. You couldn't have necessarily made that calculation. Uh, Under Oath actually got a decent amount of radio success, but they didn't sound like stuff on the radio. They were telling them, oh, cut the scream and do this or this, but it actually merged well at the time when that was coming out, that, that that was something that could get on the radio because of how unique it was, you know? So that's Absolutely. where, that's the sweet spot. That's where you want to be. If you're chasing something else, then, I mean, what are we even doing? Plus, what's the fun or point of that? And you're never going to sure. be as good at it as the people you're chasing. Like, doesn't make sense. 
I think that like, yeah, I agree. That's super important to just to to keep hammering away at what your own skill is. And like, I think the reason that more people tend to like chase a style or chase a, another band's success is because it's like, it's really difficult to go through that period of like, is this even working? Like nobody's coming to our shows. Nobody's buying our records. Is, is this even mm-hmm. like, do people even want this? You know? And I think that like, if you're doing something that is truly uniquely different, like it's going to marginalize a lot of people, you yeah, know? Right. But That's like, what I mean. It's, it's exclusive <laughs> to the sense that if you're screaming in your music or in Jim Class Heroes case, if you're rapping over, you know, funky emo songs, that right, it's not yeah. hip hop. What is it? You know, like that's, that's to the exclusion of almost what anybody would describe they, as what they like because it doesn't hardly exist. You know, totally, you're doing yeah, a I very mean, certain thing. You can't do a heavy breakdown where you scream a bunch of your gym class heroes, you know? So you've excluded a lot of people. Yeah. And ultimately, and think, that will be your benefit if it works out. Totally. If you get like good when enough. you're doing something different as an artist, you got to take your lumps for mm-hmm. a while. But like, if you just keep doing it long enough, you can you can see crowds start to gravitate. But do you, but let's not be too optimistic for everybody. That doesn't That's, mean that everybody that keeps it up and stays doing whatever stupid thing they're doing is going to eventually be successful, does it? That's true. But surely, if you're aware, if you're aware enough. Um, surely you'll get better at it, right? You know, it's like, it it doesn't mean that people, that more people are going to appreciate it over time, but I think it does mean that you will at least get better at whatever thing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know. But maybe it's, uh, you know, what you say, the aware part is a big deal. So, you know, there's people that play music and they sing their songs and they say, this is from my heart and this is me. And I know deep down in my heart that I am talented and that I'm, I've been given this gift and this is why I should do it. Those people often are very unaware, as you would put it, or out of touch with reality, as I would put it. Like they're not, <laughs> they don't actually take their lumps. They just ignore them. Like we mentioned people taking their lumps. They just, they just know that they're talented and their music matters to them. But that's not necessarily getting real feedback and being honest with yourself and soberly looking in the mirror and listening to criticism and analyzing what yours sounds like next to the other people, you know, that that's the hard part is being just super sober with yourself to realize you, you know, you don't have to let other people tell you what's bad, but you need to, you know, actively be understanding your shortcomings on reality's terms. That's what's missing from a lot of people. I think I'm, I've always been wired to like think about it, in terms of like, okay, so if I do something, why didn't that work out? Like, why wasn't that like optimal for, you know, the audience or, um, you know, so yeah, it, I think it does take a certain personality type to, to be aware. And anyways, something, maybe it's being analytical or something about that, but yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. So, all right, let's get into S town a little bit more here on S town. Or even this American Life still, how much, do I mean, do you ever interface with more of the staff or anything like that? Do you ever go to New York and anything like that? No, it is, um, it is just a lonely cavern of sadness out there in the studio. Um, <laughs> just me working in total isolation. Sometimes I don't even leave like this hill that we live on for like four days at a time, which is not great. I don't recommend that, but um uh, yeah, so no, I, I'm not, I'm not really engaged. Um, and I'm one of like, I mean, on S town, I, I think there's three other composers yeah. that are, um, I don't know. I think, and you don't know them or didn't work with them either. 
No. Um, no. It, it's it, From what I can tell, it, it's, it all feels pretty independent mm-hmm. um, amongst the composers. Uh, yeah, but I guess like going into that, into S-Town, um, yeah, I mean, Sorry, I think I think I got us off topic. No, that's okay. I'm saying so. I was just trying to get at you. You did say that on S Town they gave you more direction and told you what the show was going to be about or stuff like that. So I, I'm just curious. So Damien became the music supervisor at that as well, I suppose. Yep. Okay. So then he's like, "I oh, will work on another one." Tell me the first thing that you heard because I didn't know about it till a couple of weeks after it was out or whatever. But you must have known about it going into it that they're doing this project. How long before it was released did you get involved and, and what did they tell you about it? Gotcha. I had heard like rumblings about it for a minute, probably like a year and a half maybe before um, it came out. But it was never, I, I never heard it named. I only heard that through Damien that there was another show that This American Life and Serial were mm-hmm. working on in collaboration. Um, and then around Thanksgiving of 2016, um, actually, yeah, like maybe like right before Thanksgiving, Damien um, had mentioned to me that uh, if I was interested, um, you know, I could contribute some music to the show and that they might use it. So, uh, you know, I was I was thrilled to do something else. Um, And he sent me like, I guess you could call it a script. It was more of like a five page kind of overview Mm -hmm. of the show that sort of roughly outlined. I mean, it spoiled the show entirely. Um, but it, it roughly outlined the entire show. Um, it kind of highlighted some of the main characters. And that was about it for the materials that I had to work from. Um, so, yeah, I, I knew about some of the key moments in the show. Uh, I didn't have any tape of the show yet. I was just sort mm-hmm. of just working off of the script. But, I mean, I'm used to working on this American Life music, which is just like you get nothing. So, like, yeah. to have even like a five page document was like gold. Like, I could, you know, I could pull so much like inspiration and so many ideas uh, conceptually from that script. And I did. Like, I probably worked, I probably wrote music based off of that little five pages for maybe like two, two and a half months, I'd say. And then um, around February, they sent me maybe 25 minutes of tape from the show of Brian Reed, um, you know, doing some narration at different points throughout the series. And so then I had that to work from, which was... So you knew you were scoring moments like a a sad phone call, stuff like that or whatever. Yeah, totally. And like, I tried to like, I tried to really think about the characters initially. Like I would like look at a character's story and then try and understand that person and then think like okay what does their song sound like like you know john b macklemore like Mm -hmm. what what would his song sound like if he had a theme song and so for like everybody on the show i try to write themes i thought about it like in terms of the geography like what's natural for me in that type of uh podcast or or storytelling is to bring in you know like i talked about the certain palette of sounds that i tend to use but like i tried to widen that with this show and think about like what what instruments speak to like rural Alabama, you know? Um, and, and so I would bring in, um, there's this thing called a banjo fiddle that I brought in for one song. Um, and just really like very rural sounding instruments that also worked within 
the spectrum of what I was already writing, I guess. Yeah. So what were your uh, thoughts before you started writing for John McLemore? And you said, what does his song sound like? What What were the words in your head? What were your thoughts about him before you had heard the show and with the music? I, before I heard the show, um, just based off the script, I, I did get the sense that he was like a super complicated individual uh, that was flawed but that was like that had a heart you know and, and there was like a certain like warmness okay. about so i think you know that certainly colored i guess my impression of him uh deeply flawed but warm and kind in a way and so you were uh, looking for sounds that made you feel that way like how would that how does that translate to music i know because if you went super analytical you say oh complicated uh so it would be weird time signatures and then flawed but it's out of tune sure. you know it's not on the nose like that so what is it that you're actually looking for if you had those notions in mind do you start by selecting instruments that feel that way or do you just play around until you get chord function that make that that oh i know sad chords a bit, i'll use these these and the you know like what how yeah. do you go from those descriptive words to discovering do you discover the, the sounds by playing around or you get very intentional and know where you're going to go I think a lot of that for me it's hev heavily discovery based I would mm -hmm. say but like um yeah definitely like I mean certain instruments you know like a glockenspiel or like I found John Macklemore to be funny and so like a tuba might pop in yeah. doing the bass line you know and, and things like yeah. that where um and especially chords yeah like you know I could be trying something and hit a chord and be like ah that chord doesn't speak to this scenario that I'm trying to write for and so um, then, you know, trying different versions and, and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know if there's really a, a No, that's great a good answer. I'm just asking, you know, I'm just trying to get through the gears of a concept to words to feel like, you know, it gets down to some, at some point you have to make technical selections. So you have to leave the world of feelings and or, or you at least have to guess. And I guess what I'm getting at is and we just we said that word discovery there. There's a difference in people that may be like you or me um, versus other people. I talk about this on the show a lot. I think there's a distinction between composers and just purely expressive artists. So it, I guess in the parallel here, I think somebody like Travi or Toby from our band, they're very expressive people who are just trying to get their thoughts and their feelings out there, and it's all about feel, kind of stuff like that. But I find with people that are more composer or arrangers, like me and probably you, um, some of that stuff exists, but you're really more feeling like you're exploring and discovering and curating stuff and putting it together. It's not necessarily, I just have all this this coming out of me. You just kind of calculate. You come at it, and then you go exploring through the woods, and you try chords, and you look over this way, and you explore that avenue, and you find what, you know, kind of works. So it almost feels to me music writing. I don't even like the term writing. I just like to discover, maybe compose, you know, come up with music. But I think a lot of it comes from actually just uh, discovering, you know. And I was mm -hmm. wondering, does that resonate with you, the word to discover? Do you feel like you discover music or write music? Definitely, yeah. I, I'm sure I discover music. And I think that, like, a lot of times when I, when I am even writing, like, independent of, like, that show or... Um, if I'm just like free writing, basically, mm -hmm. we'll call it a lot of times I'm like just bringing a sound and I'll, I'll, maybe I'll start on like, you know, a Moog or something. And, and I'm like, no, that's not really speaking to me right now. And, and I'll fish around like through presets for a while. I'll be like, 
okay, this like I'm finding this particular sound to be inspiring in this moment, you know. And so then that can spawn like, you know, an entire song based off of me connecting with the way that like, you know, a glockenspiel sounds or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, did, did you just say mode a second ago? Is in like the modes of the major keys? Oh no, sorry, Moog is in like. The oh Moog, okay, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just so you you start then with a texture, a patch, or a sound actually first then. Yeah, mm -hmm. I find sounds to be highly inspiring if I'm just free writing. Like in terms of working on S Town, there was specific, um, I guess, goals that I was shooting for. So each day, you know, and when I first got the script, I marked all over that thing with like a highlighter. I just like went through and I would highlight anything that felt particularly like important, like something that I want, that I felt like I had something musically to to talk about um, that would relate to that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's all right. You, you, you feel like you get uh, uncomfortable if you dead end at the end of a question, but don't worry about that. You keep doing it. Yeah, that. you know, it, you feel that, like, I mean, we're just talking, you know, don't feel bad about that. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. There's no, there is no on topic. I don't know. We're just, it, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing either. I'm just catching up with you. So don't feel bad like, like you're on air. Yeah, like you, I've done so much press before, but yeah. like I've actually done very little talk talking about S Town yet, mm -hmm. and so it's like it's still like I'm still sort of working through a lot of the yeah. thoughts I have about about that. Yeah, so. no, it's a, such an interesting project. I imagine you didn't know uh, going into it, like if you wanted to do film score, and you studied you studied music, and what what's your background? You went, uh, I don't know what it is, but you went, you did college and stuff like that for music, right? I do, kind of, I did, um, I mean, I'd say my musical background is gym class heroes. It's uh -huh. like, you know, basically just being in bands. Mm -hmm. But, um, when we were on tour, I went back cause I had dropped out of school to pursue gym class. Um, when we got signed to fuel by ramen, I was actually going into my senior year at college and I was just like, nah, I gotta do this, you know? So mm -hmm. I pieced out and then went back to school from the road. So, um, I got I completed the degree from Boston University, and then um, after that, went and did uh, a program at Berkeley School of Music that was. Oh, that's what I saw that online somewhere. That's what it is at Berkeley, yep. Which is yeah. in Boston, up there too, somewhere, right? It is. Yeah, I did it remotely online. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do have uh, a little bit of a technical background, but I don't know if anything like really like prepares you for the reality of like having an actual project to work mm -hmm. on even if it's like literally like a local car dealership commercial or something like that i just think there's so much to be learned from real world work yeah um, real world there it is again so but you yeah. wanted to do film and stuff like that and what i was trying to suggest is it's interesting that podcasts have have grown up in this way where the mute, I mean, in a way, the podcast audio is just as important or more important. I mean, there's only audio in a podcast, and the, and these produced ones are like documentary films. I mean, it's no different than scoring a film, and is and it's interesting that this industry is blowing up to the point where there's real work to do. Real, I mean, what I'm saying is, if I do a podcast like I do, the small, I do a few podcasts, and some of them are higher production. But I don't have enough time or budget to actually get original music made. And the fact that there's some podcasts out there, and there will be more in the future, that are big enough to support having original music created based on their script. 
I mean, that's, that is no different than doing a film. So that, that's amazing that when you thought you wanted to do film scoring, you didn't probably even ever have this on your radar that this would be. A, no. a, it's basically the same thing. It's a whole new market, you know? Yeah. I, I always say that it's funny because, like, I, want, I was trying to write for films and do stuff like that. Couldn't get, like, anywhere near that world, but then ended up at, like, the Super Bowl of podcasts. Yeah. You know, so it's been, it, it's been an interesting um time, I guess, to pursue this, you know, because there is so much more content going into things like the podcast world. I mean, and there's, I know a lot of people that do music licensing, um, even professionally, a lot of them do corporate stuff, basically. So that's the mm -hmm. other big avenue that a lot of people do. They just stuff for Amazon or whatever, just Microsoft, stuff, stuff like that gets placement and, all, you know, ads and things like that. And I know a few people that get stuff placed and do music for film and things like that a little bit. Uh, but do you do you see it as something that you want to stay in podcasting or you still want to move to film or would you be fine making money just creating ads for Microsoft? How do you feel about, I, those, about those areas in the composition world? I think that for me right now, I, I guess 10 years out, yes, I would love to be doing literally everything that you just mentioned. But <laughs> uh, I think like for now, the the best way that I can like pursue this would be to do work that matters to me. Mm -hmm. And I think when I'm doing that, when I'm, when I'm working on projects that are really, really meaningful and that are high quality and really, really well done, I think I can do really, really good work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've done some, like s some, I guess, corporate commercials where, you are working for a client and I think that that's good and I can do that. But I think that like my best work goes to the, the places where there's very, there's very little guide guidelines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think quality matters right now. And so it's like, I want to be picky about what I'm doing um, and that's so far it's been, that's been a good road for me. Um, you know, this American life was amazing and that led to S town, which has been amazing. Um, so it seems like I'm being not, a music guy on S town in this American life would get you film opportunities if you wanted them though. Right. Maybe I mean, it's a good thing know. to have on your resume. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. much better. I mean, I it's so. completely the same thing. And it's of at the highest level. I mean, I think like right now, I kind of consider myself as having three jobs uh -huh. because like there's the composition stuff, music producer for that, and then there's um, two. I mean, I just got back from being on the road with an artist. Um, you know, I've probably been out with four different artists in the last two years, and so um, touring as a drummer is also. A career and I love doing that I love mm -hmm. traveling and I love like supporting new artists work and trying to help them rise to the next level I love being on stage um, so so that's the second job and then I also have my band gym class heroes and mm -hmm. um, you know so it, it can feel like a, a full plate a lot of times and it, it kind of feels like I'm sort of bouncing back and forth between these different worlds so let's talk about money I'm not gonna make you say specific things about money but just how it works how much you got 
<laughs> well, you can if you want to, but don't feel like you have to say anything specific. I'm just curious. Did you, in this setup, were you able to go, most people would say, because I find that most people are, uh, there's this background to the way I think, which is I assume that there's a lot of people out there that are always wanting to work for themselves and do what you do and do what these other people do and the people that are on podcasts. Like, I want to do the creative. That's the tone of everybody right now. feels like I want to quit my nine to five. I want to work for myself and do creative, whatever it is. That that seems like everybody. And there's a few people that get to do that. And so the, I think they're always trying to figure out, well, what did you do or what's the key or what's the trick or whatever. But how... You had your background education from being in gym class, being exposed to good music, being around professional musicians, connections. That So that was helpful for sure. Was there a money component? Like, how did you get in a situation where you can buy a house, build a studio, and then write a song and mix it every day to go nowhere? How can you do that? Did you have finance? Were you financially set up from your other stuff to be able to clear out that much time to put into this? Because that's the thing I think most people can't do. They can't just not go to work tomorrow and write and mix a song every day five days a week until they get somewhere. So how did that work for you to get in that position? I guess, yeah, I've never really thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, gym class It's called privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Musical privilege. It's not race-based yeah. privilege. It's just... It hasn't always <laughs> been that way for me. <laughs> no, I know. But, I know that. Um, yeah, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not stupid rich out here, but like... Yeah, I definitely had, like, I had been really responsible with my money. I mean, the thing is, I didn't even have time to spend money. It's like we were working for, like, 10 years straight, and it was just like, so for me, by the time I got off the road, it was like I was very comfortable, my family was comfortable, and I had been investing and saving the whole time we were doing gym class. So Mm -hmm. certainly that was... um, was helpful to how, say. How yeah. long did you work on doing that every day, writing a song thing, where you were earning no money day to day? Oh man, I would say like, I'd say there was like a year and a half, two years of just like getting dragged through the mud, like not being able to like, and knocking on a lot of doors, like hitting up like video directors, um, podcasters, like hitting up like mad people and trying to get people to like hear me out, like. Um, and really like never getting people's attention. And I was doing the same thing for like trying to get on the road, playing drums for artists and stuff too. I was, I was constantly like checking like billboard and seeing who the new artists were and like staying in tune with that because I wanted to go out and work with emerging and exciting new artists. So I would say there was like a year and a half where it was just really hard. And every day you're just dragging yourself to the studio or really to your computer and trying to get anyone's attention. Um, That's pretty interesting. I, for, so there's a couple of interesting things that I'd credit you for in there. First of all, you say you didn't have time to spend money. Most people figure out how to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Most people figure out if they have it, how to spend it, even if they don't have a lot of time. And, but you were responsible with it, which is really good. And so there's a concept there of leverage, I suppose. You've leveraged what your, both your skills and your relationships and your finances to go to the next thing. So I, I can't, and you must have enough determination to not give up after six months or three months. Like, can you imagine that for a lot of people to say, I'm going to, I want to be a professional composer and they work on it for three months and get nowhere. Wow. It's totally and, reasonable and I, to hang it up at that point. Yeah. And like, actually my, my friend Infamous, who's like crazy, amazing music producer in Miami, like had told me one time, he's like, 
hey, music is mostly rejection. Mm-hmm. Like, in what he meant by that is like, he's a producer, and so he's going out there and writing and producing songs and then pitching them to this artist. This artist is like, no. Pitching it to this artist. This artist is like, no. And, and you know, doing that 10, 20 more times before somebody's like, okay, yeah, I like this song. Yeah. You know, and so it's just like, it takes a lot of just like knocking on doors and and getting turned away or told no. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess you just have to not let it break you. Mm-hmm. But some days it does, it does feel soul crushing, you know, oh, certainly. Oh, for sure. It sounds to me like you're really good with uh, project and resource management is what I'm trying to say. And also you understood who you were and that you do have a certain resume and relationship. So you said you would look at Billboard and see who the emerging artists are. Well, anybody can do that, but you had the ability to leverage your relationships and resume to probably reach out to their managers and say, hey, if you need anybody, I'm Matt from gym class, you know. So that's a pretty smart thing to do. Yes and no, because I mean, at the same time, like gym class has an association of its own. And, and so whether that's like um, w- what people's perception of what gym class heroes mm-hmm. is to them might not be like who I am as a person or a drummer or as a musician, yeah. you know. So like, like I think that like if you would have told like, I don't know, NPR audiences that, um, you know, the drummer for gym class heroes was writing the music for This American Life and Esteban, right. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that would have like made made sense on paper. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's true. I can see that point. But yeah, so gym class can can be like that association can be like a blessing and a curse too. Mm-hmm. You know. No, I, I'm sure that's the truth with anything you're trying to build or you have a brand, whether you like it or not. Sometimes, for sure, I, I certainly deal with that. From I mean, for Emory, it's just oh, screaming punk, oh, stupid stuff, or especially Christian. If you get tagged as anything Christian, then you know you're on a you're on the do not reply list for a lot of people. <laughs> so, but yeah, I not, totally know what you mean. But nonetheless, you just take your opportunities and your resources, your your relationships and your drive and you just kind of leverage them all. It sounds like you did it pretty smart to be able to work for for months or a year and a half without even, you know, that's a lot of determination there. Yeah, thank you. Did you have a backup plan? Of what um, else to do? No, I t- I think it's got to be music from here on out. Like I'm, I, I've invested enough time. Like I mean, I'm 34 now, so it's mm-hmm. like I've been doing this professionally for 14 years, and so 13 years. Um, and so I think that like I, I don't know about anything else. It's like I see like you know my peers, and they'll like I don't know work at like an ad agency or yeah. like you know a, a, any any number of careers, but it's just like. I mean, I guess you could start anything you want at any point. You can be 70 and decide that you want to be a triathlete. But like the way that I am, I tend to commit. I'm I'm very long-term, like long mm-hmm. game oriented. And so it's just like I feel like I've built up 13 years of wonderful experience in music. And so I'm interested to see where that can get me, you know, 13 years from now. Yes. So, um, I, I think like what I was saying earlier, it's just like staying in my lane, keep doing what I'm doing. There's going to be good years and there's going to be bad years. This year, it's like, I guess it seems like it's a good year, you know, because like my content is like starting to like spread out there and stuff. But like last year was kind of a bad year, you know, and like the year before that was great, actually. So it's just like, I think like in as an artist, like, and I think this, I think it applies for any artist of any medium, but like 
I don't think that your career is like ever linear or ever like just tracking like yeah. upward. It's like peaks and valleys sure. constantly, you know. And um, in a way, that's really exciting. And like, I almost like, I I almost think that I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that like to be able to have a career that does excite you, that does take risks, I think is is a is a great way to live your life. It's almost like what John B. McElmore talks about at the end of S Town. Like he's talking about like how many um, you know humans only have so many waking hours, and mm-hmm. it's like how you spend those hours that determines the quality of your life. And I think that like it's I think to, to for me to live a life that's just void of any risk um, or that mitigates like new challenges. I think. I don't know if that would be fulfilling enough, mm-hmm. you know. So. Did you just when you did hear the final product of S Town? I mean, I would want to assume you'd be blown away. But how did how did you feel when you you didn't hear it actually put together till it was released, or did you hear it before that? Um, no, I heard it with everybody else. Yeah. Yo, I was so excited. It was crazy. It was like it was one of the biggest moments of my career, and I think that it was because like. With gym class, we've done, we've like, we've performed like, you know, from for 10 people to like some of the highest points that I think a band could hope to get to. Mm -hmm. And I would say that when S Town was released, it trumped, maybe trumped any of them. You know, it was just like, and and I think that's because of, you know, there being this like gap in my career where I was kind of redefining and, and transitioning between being like band dude to like trying to like be taken seriously as a music producer and composer. So I think because of all that, like getting dragged through the mud every day and like getting like not listened to or turned away, like it just made that final moment where I was able to contribute to something that was really, really terrific. It made that like so special. Yeah. To There's me. something real so special about that, about just being, just actually contributing validly to something that's on that high of a level. And that's what I think of S Town. Oh. I, I like the story. I like. I think it's amazing. All that, but the actual quality of the artistic product made there is is just very high. It's as good as you can do in this medium so far, in my opinion. And that they needed wow. you to do it, and that's got to just be an amazing feeling. But how did you feel about the show? The the actual show itself did you were you able to listen to it and enjoy it like a listener or was it just weird because you had worked on it yo i've listened to that show like three times like the whole series yeah. like i'm i'm so into it and like every time i listen to it i hear different stuff but like there's something about that show man yeah. like it's the tone of it like the the accents the voices and the characters mm-hmm. where it is just like like you said it's it's like it's unlike anything else you know yeah. um it's really fantastic and like i thought it was going to be really good but it was actually like it was actually like five times better than i even anticipated yeah i I just am so big on it like uh what's so exciting about me is that to me is that i think podcasting is so kind of new i think most of the best ideas haven't been had yet like i think these are the people that are doing the best and they happen to have the background at radio and all the support and stuff like that there's going to be so many good things that happen but so far this is about as good as it can get it seems like it's just really exciting to watch that happen because like if you think back about tv it used to be not that great and it's just taken 
decades to get so good at TV like we are totally, right now. And yeah. so podcasting is just brand new. So it's so exciting to see the newer and better things and stuff that, that people are doing. But the, the one of the takeaways for me on it is like, whoa, whoa. So first of all, I identify with it because I know a ton of people like all the characters in that show from where I grew up. So, <laughs> you know, I grew up in a rural in South Carolina, rural, yeah. and I, I know all those characters. Like, John McLemore is, uh, you know, one of a kind for sure. Uh, but mm. in general, those people at the tattoo shop and his friends, and they're all, I mean, I know all those people, all 100%. And I never <laughs> thought they could be that entertaining or, or displayed in that way. And it makes me yeah. go, wait a second. There is, there's the thousands of stories like that that could go be recorded, mm -hmm. taped, uh, narrated, put music to, and told. There's an infinite amount of real stories that are real life that could be told like that. Like, that's not the only one. It's not like they just yeah. found the one crazy story and recorded it and put it out. They went and made made this in conjunction with something that was uh, just incredibly complex on its own already, and there's so mm -hmm. many more. Like, I'm just thinking of characters I know back in South Carolina. I'm like, wow, he could have a show. He could, you know, it's a lot harder <laughs> than that to make it than st stick a tape recorder in their face, of course, but it's just exciting <laughs> because it's actually almost the fulfillment of the promise of what anybody ever wanted reality TV to be because this is, like, mm -hmm. way closer to actually getting to understand real life in a format that does not work on TV. On TV, it's got to be four-second clips with producers and false narration backwards to make it kind of feel real and look real. And we all know it's just not even real, but we're attracted to it. But this medium mm -hmm. is really almost, this is like what you everybody was looking for in reality TV. And I just think it's so exciting. I love it so much. Definitely. The, the, the other thing that interests me a lot, and I've never thought about it until now, but like when you're listening to a podcast, you're often out in the world. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm pointing at a tree right now and like I remember like trimming that tree like a few weeks ago and like hearing uh John B Macklemore's funeral scene uh, <laughs> okay. in, in that spoiler sorry yeah. um but like you podcasts are, are personal in that way that maybe TV and film aren't whereas you're you're watching TV you're at your couch or you're watching a film in a cinema it's like you're out people are out in the world listening to these podcasts and these stories are becoming the soundtracks to their lives to the point that you're associating moments. You know, you know, oh, you'll that's hear interesting. A song. I hadn't thought about that before. Keep going. You could hear like, you know, a Tom Petty song yeah. and think about like, oh, I think about like driving over this hill because like one time I did that. And so I think that like it's podcasts are immersive in a way that maybe film and television can't be. Oh, that's such a good point. I'm glad you said that because you're right about that. Because you know how, like, if you, for me, if I'm going back somewhere and I hear Rage Against the Machine, it puts me in the exact place I was when I first discovered that and was at soccer practice and listened to it for pump-up yeah. music, stuff like that. Like, it means something because it's attached to my real-life experience. Whereas if I go watch a TV totally. show or a movie, I'm in a chair in a dark room on a couch. It, it's not connected to my life. It's an escape from my life. Whereas listening to music while you're doing something or going to a concert or just the music that you listen to, especially in your developmental years, is so powerful that there's recall when you go to the same places or you hear that music, it takes you back. Mm -hmm. And you're, that, that's a really interesting point that podcasts are that way. I never thought about it. Like you, you could have those same associations about a person or them talking it could take you back to a place. It doesn't ha it's not necessarily mu music itself. It's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's something else there. That's really a neat. That's really a neat thought. 
Boy, I hope I didn't just spoil the show. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think so. But we, you don't have to say any more about. It. I thought about that. I, there's more I would talk about with you about the show, but I suppose I'll leave some spoiler stuff out of it. But I wouldn't worry about that too much, Every, you know. <laughs> but um, that's 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 no problem at all. Uh, man, that is so exciting. I just can't believe how cool it is. Just to, uh, I just count it a treasure to me that I get. There's so many people that I have been lucky enough to be around that do so many neat things. If I just went down the list, sometimes I do that. I could just go through my phone list and my text message list and say, <laughs> and find somebody that's doing something interesting or check back in on them. And it's just, it's incredible. I remember when we first toured with you guys, it was, I remember the first time I met you would have been, it was at, I think we played at the, whatever that club was in Chicago was it hmm. Boys Night Out and us and you guys opened? Must have been. And it was at yep. like the bottom lounge in Chicago or something like that. You remember that? That sounds about right. Man, and you guys were so like generous, like <laughs> coming up. No, always like like we like you guys gave us so many opportunities coming up. Like within the first year of us being on the road, um, you know, really, really generous. And I remember once, and I have to tell you this, like, um, we we finished a tour and we were we were playing like you know n nobody was coming there for gym class heroes but like we were playing one of four on this tour and uh we finished it up and we were like probably gonna drive our van out and go to another tour but you guys at the end of tour you're like look we did really good on this tour and then like blessed us with a fat cash uh, a fat envelope of cash and it was just like Wow. <laughs> like that meant so much to us. But here's the thing. We paid that forward and every single tour like that we would go out on, we would always approach the opening, opening band like at, every, at the end of every single tour and do give that give that same thanks to them. And so that's something that you guys started that stuck with our band so much like for our entire career. So I have to thank you for that. That's interesting. I don't know that we always do that, but at the time we could afford to do it a little bit. <laughs> I don't think Disclaimer we do it works to, that way anymore. Disclaimer to any but. future opening bands yeah, for yeah. you. They might not get that. Yeah, <laughs> if you open for us in the future, don't count on an envelope of cash at the end. But yes. yeah, we did do that. I, mean, I guess somebody had done that to us, and we thought that's just how you do it. And when it's possible to do it, sure is nice, you know. Yeah, it was, but, it was a class move. Yeah, I remember you guys, and you were playing that Yamaha kit. It was like a hip gig kit, the real small one. Is it hip gig? Oh, is that the yeah. name of that? Tiny. I still got it out in the studio. I love that so much. I've always loved those drum sets and that drum set. And your drum, you know, we always just thought you guys were such a good band. Like, it's so unique and different. And I mean, we didn't think you were going to blow up or anything. We thought, what well, we would always say they could or they should. or we, You know, you were just, a, uh, so we did that tour and we did the other one with As Cities Burn and Gatsby's American Dream, right? Remember that one? Yep. Yep, and it was like this is so crazy that this band isn't big yet. It seems like the, it. Are, it's almost as if we'd resigned. Like, man, here's a band that could blow up and be mainstream. It's too bad they're stuck being openers on indie tours forever. Too bad there's <laughs> not a good world for them because they should be huge and they could be huge. Oh well, too bad for them anyway. And then it did work. It, it really actually well, happened. It worked. So that, I was, well, it wouldn't uh, worked without your support for sure. <laughs> well, um, I appreciate that, but I'm sure it, it would have. It was a big deal for us and, and to go out with you guys. We Travis and I used to see, like, uh, they would play Walls video a lot. There was a um, Christian channel that would play, like, music videos mm -hmm. at, like, midnight or something on Saturdays. And so we would stay up and watch this show, and then they played Walls. And, like, we, we really got into it then. Um, and I guess that was the first album or? Yep, yep. Yeah. 
So right. um, yeah, it was a big big deal to go out with you guys. Man. Yeah, Travis used to come out and and rap on walls on our set. That's All right. those tours were so funny. <laughs> and then some of the even some of the stuff that he said, I remember from that rap that he was just working out in the like bridge of walls or something. It was really fun, funny to do. But some of the uh, I can't remember what it is or which so- songs, but some of the rhymes he was doing when he was improvising through that are on your records after that that I heard later. Oh, I, I'm sure you don't remember what he was doing in Walls, but I remember he would kind of work it out and say different stuff every night, but there would be similar things. And then it wound up being in like, mm-hmm. hits later, stuff that he had worked out on yeah. stage with us, which I thought was really neat. Travis is just unbelievable. Um, yeah. But I, one time I went to uh, his bar in New York. This is probably, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but it was so funny. We went. Uh, I was there with my sister and my wife were there in New York for some reason. And I texted Travis. He's like, yeah, come down to the bar or whatever. And we went down there and sat at a VIP table at his bar. <laughs> and he came in late. Like, we were there for a while and hung out and did stuff. And then he came in. It was getting pretty late. He came in, and he was just, like, it was super weird. So I think this is, I think this is what happened. But he came in, and he was dating a girl. And, and they came in and sat with us, but they were clearly like in a fight or something. Like it was, it was like they were having a rough night, it seemed like, but he wanted to come out still and sit with us and do stuff like that for a while. But he came and sat at the table with us and they got us a bottle and hung out, but they were just like, I don't, I don't exactly know what was going on, but it was, it was, and I didn't know who it was at the time either, but it was Travis and Katy Perry who was sitting, who oh, came yeah. in and sat at the booth with us. And I, mean, I didn't know who Katy Perry was. I just like, she was just somebody named Katie that I met, I guess, at the time. <laughs> well, yeah. So I can imagine about what era. Yeah. Whatever time that I can't remember, it was 2000, probably eight or nine or something like that. But so yeah, I don't remember I what the timeline was, but I thought that was a really funny just because I didn't know who she was and whatever. But I, I see Travis from time to time. I've te- I hadn't texted him in at least a couple years, but I I've seen him a few times when he came through Seattle. I think we saw him at the, we, I saw you, you were with him when I saw you at the Gorge one time. It was just Travi McCoy, but I think you were playing drums, right? Right, yeah. I, what I was feel that? like I was that Warped I'm like Trav's like security yeah. blanket, or even when he was going out on solo things, he like yeah. didn't feel quite comfortable without me like in the back there playing the drums. So um, yeah, I would have done that. Did you play on that. his records on the Travi McCoy singles and stuff? Not, no. But you go um, on the road? I mean, for the most part, that's like maybe 11 different producers on that across yeah. that album. And they all yeah. have, you know, their own process of how, how they get drums. So, Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I imagine. So that's awesome. Now, you have any touring coming up? So tell me about gym class. Y'all have something. Y'all are doing stuff again? You hadn't done We it? are. Yeah, it's, it's still very new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've started accepting tours so i guess we kind of got to do it now but um it should be good like i've written maybe like 25 or 30 song ideas at this point some of them are awful and some of them are amazing so hopefully we can you know find a balance in there but um it should be good yeah we're working later this month we're good we're getting together at this old chapel in upstate new york that this British artist had purchased and renovated into like an art studio in the eighties. And I think he's since passed away, but, um, the estate run it uh, or maintain it and run it as like an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just this amazing, like open one room place way off in the country, hundreds of acres and like privacy where we can make music at odd hours of the night. Um, so I think it'll be a good, like, that sounds um, fun, man. Writing session. It's very early on in, in that process, but um, yeah, 
Well, good for you guys. It's been a thrill to catch up. This has been stimulating. So it's Thanks, great, great to like, talk to you. I'd love to hear uh, more of what's going on, more stuff y'all do. And I imagine if you really want to repay the favor, once you go out and do another big tour, you can at least bring Emery to be one of four of one day. I've been counting on that for a while. Maybe one day it'll happen. <laughs> I mean, it might have to be a co-headliner, but that would be <laughs> no. amazing. Yeah, no. For sure. Yeah, we should do something together in the future if if, if that ever possible. I would I would enjoy it to see you guys. You always had a great time. So make sure you tell Travi and Eric and Desashi I said hey when you talk to them. Awesome. And keep me updated. We'll do something else. Well, sorry, sorry, I talked over you. What did you say there? Thank you for having me on. This was amazing. Where, uh, okay, so if anybody out there making a film or a podcast that has any budget at all, they should hit, They should go to your website, which is what? Is there places yeah, people so, can listen to your library and stuff like that? Totally. I have like um, basically a curation of mm-hmm. my catalog that's all available non-exclusively so people can uh, go get dope music for their podcast or for their video or whatever else. Um and that's at Small Talk Musica, M U S I C A dot com. Small Talk um, And a lot Musica. of that stuff is some stuff that's been on This American Life um, is up there. And um, I think it's the goal is really to make like really dope music easy and fast and affordable for people who want to use it within their uh, content. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll uh, uh, link that in the show notes here. And we'll, I'll, I'll put this episode up just right away. It'll be up in like in an hour. As soon oh. as I put it together here. If you'll send me your audio, I'll put this episode up right away. Awesome. I'll do that immediately. All right. Great to talk to you, Matt. Sweet. Likewise. Thanks, man. See Appreciate you soon. it. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s, and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.